You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, Where is the God of justice? I'll send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by as in former years. So come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Thank you, Lockie. Good morning, everyone, again helpful to keep Malachi open in front of us, unless, of course, you've memorised it. Uh, I'm sure some of you are probably up for that. You know, you've put the whole book of Malachi to heart. In case you haven't, let me give you a little bit of the background. Um, Let me also start my clock so I'm actually aware of how long I'm going for. There we go. We've been looking at the book of Malachi. This is now sermon number four, uh, unpacking a a book of the Bible that is probably less familiar uh, than many. Uh, It's uh, a book that was written almost two and a half thousand years ago uh, during a really tough period of time for God's people in Israel. They'd been in exile in Babylon in uh, 687. Nebuchadnezzar had come in, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city of Jerusalem exiled the people wholesale. They estimate over 90% of the Jewish population of that region was taken uh, at that time into exile. But God's promises through the prophets were that his people would return. And they had. They'd returned. And under the ministry of guys like Nehemiah and Ezra and Haggai and Nahum, they'd actually they'd rebuilt the, the, the city and they'd rebuilt the temple and they'd restarted things. And there were these great promises that God had made about God's people being blessed, about his enemies being overturned. But it wasn't working. They remained under the thumb. The Persians still ruled in the promised land. There was poverty. There was famine. There was injustice. And so God's people started doubting that God loved them at all. The book of Malachi is a series of oracles, a series of sayings uh, where God is replying to the accusations that his people are making against him. You don't love us. What good is it to serve the Lord this morning? Where is the God of justice? God replies to these accusations and turns them around upon his people. 
And we see that the issues facing Israel at this point, they weren't primarily social or economic or, uh, or political. They were primarily theological. And their view of God was affecting their entire way of life. Got four points for you this morning. Worked hard. They're all in the letter C, just like Cameron. Uh, crisis. Consequence. I could say Colin, couldn't I as well? Coming. Commitment. So let's jump in to Malachi and see this crisis. As I've said, it was a crisis of faith for God's people at this time. All the things were stacking up. God had made all these promises, but he didn't seem to be delivering. And so we have in verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. And he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? God's people were under the thumb. The Persians were ruling. Those who compromised with the Persian overlords got ahead. It seemed that injustice was the name of the game. Being faithful actually seemed to count against you. So where is this God? Why would it even make sense to follow his ways? And you know what? We ask the same question, don't we? We often ask the same question. There is inequality, there is exploitation within our communities, within our societies. Those with power sometimes have hurt us. And if God exists, he must either give them the thumbs up because they seem to get away with it so often, or perhaps he lacks the power to do anything about it. The questions of Israel were questions that we ask as well. It's a problem for God's people then and now. Because in the Bible, God is presented as perfectly holy. We sung it, didn't we? God is a holy God. God is a holy God. He hates injustice. He hates evil. The prophet Habakkuk said these words. He says to the Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Israel knew their Bibles, but Persia was on top. Those who followed the law, those who were faithful, seemed to be the ones at the bottom. Those who compromised seemed to be the ones who were getting ahead. God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly loving and good, and he is all-knowing. It's not that he didn't notice this, but the Bible also teaches us that God is all-powerful. So we have a problem. Why isn't God acting? Now, this morning, you may be here visiting amongst us, sort of sussing out what Christianity is about, and it's Absolutely fantastic that you are here. But can I say, you might be going, yep, that's actually why I don't believe in Christianity. This whole God of justice and love and power and all the injustice and the rubbish that goes on in the world. How does that work? But can I just say to you just briefly, that sense you have 
when you are on the rough end of injustice. You know it, don't you? Have you ever said, it's not fair? If you take God out of the picture, that objection actually doesn't even make sense. By, by what standard do you say what's fair or not? Good and right and fair, as Christians, we define those by God's word. And we know that some things are right and wrong. But if you take God out of the picture, good, well, it's whatever it's good for you. But what's good for you may not be good for me. And what's good for me may not be good for the next person. What's right is a matter of power, not a matter of absolutes, but a matter of who gets to define these things. And so if you're sitting there saying it's not fair, I think you recognise in your heart that there is someone, there is a God that does define these things, and you know this viscerally. But God has an answer for Israel and an answer for us. When we're tempted to ask, where is the God of justice? God has an answer for us. But before we get there, let's jump into the consequences. What happens when, like Israel, we ditch the God of justice? What happens when we doubt that God will ever set things straight? Perhaps he can't. Well, what happened in Israel? Those who suffered injustice were perpetrating injustice. The very thing that they raged against, they were doing to others. It's kind of like, um, you know, dad comes home, he's had a rough day at work, he rouses on the eldest in the family, the eldest of the children, who then goes to the next child and beats them up and then goes down the line. It, does this ever happen in your house? Never happens in mine, okay? Uh, but you imagine, what happens is you find the next person who you can conveniently pick on. The Persians were picking on on Israel, so Israel found some other people that they could pick on. They had no power in relation to the Persians. They couldn't set them straight, but I can certainly kick this person around, and that's what they were doing. And they felt that they could get away with it. They felt that God's not going to judge this because he's not judging the Persians, so he's not going to judge me. And if he's not going to look out for us, we better start looking out for ourselves. And I can't set things straight with Persia. They're way too big for me. But I can get what I need in a little way by pushing these others around. So they were passing the pain. They had become the very thing that they hated. Malachi 3 verse 5 gives you a little bit of idea as God levels his charge against his people. He says, I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers, the occult practitioners, the adulterers, those who have been breaching the covenant of marriage, the perjurers, those who lie to get ahead, against those who defraud labourers of their wages. Most of this society was a society that lived hand to mouth. You went, you did your work, you got paid, you went to the market, you bought your dinner and then you ate your dinner and then you got up and you went to work and did it again. And so if, a, if an employer withheld wages, the threat to existence was very real. For those who oppress widows, 
and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me. We see the injustice that Israel, that God's people were actually perpetrating against others. Sure, they might have been excusing it. Ah, the Persians get away with it. What does it matter? But God is bringing a charge against them. What about us? What about us? Where do we use power, position, opportunity to gain advantage at others' expense? It's easy. You can look at politics, can't you? There's a cynicism in Australian society about politicians. They're really only in it for themselves. And unfortunately, some of the time, that's actually true. You see, decisions made. Does anyone ever hear, very rarely actually have I ever heard, I think once or twice, you know, it's time for a pay rise, okay? I find it very funny that the politicians can actually vote themselves a pay rise. Um, You should suggest that to your employers as well. Uh, But they seem to never be opposed, except for the odd voice here and there saying, well, maybe we shouldn't do this. It looks like you're in it to get out for yourself or for your people, to look after your mates, your friends. It's easy to look overseas. I have friends who grew up in uh, African contexts, and when certain leaders from certain tribes come to the fore, what do they do? They look after their tribe at the expense of everyone else's. And then when the tables are turned, the next person looks after their tribe at the expense of these people. Our tribes are just a little less well-defined. We do it just as much. Maybe it's not politics, but it's position. Maybe at work we use opportunity to get ahead. We've got authority I heard of someone once who uh, was notorious for just delegating anything that they didn't want to do to everyone else. And so everyone else gets to deal with the rubbish and this person just got to pick what they chose to do. Okay, are you using position? How How do your employees, how do your subordinates, those that you work alongside, how do they view you? Do they see you as a blessing or not? Are you using people to get ahead? So you work together, but you claim, you claim the benefit. You claim the fruit of their labour as your own, so it makes you look good. Do you use your position to exploit? Maybe it's relational. This is something that I've noticed more in the female realm, so ladies, please forgive me, I'm not having a go at you necessarily, but you guys tend to be more relationally complex than us men. Um, And I see the dynamics in groups of women. The gossip, the exclusion, the little games that people play to exert power that from the outside it looks like nothing's happening. But from the inside, the experience is one of power. And if you've been excluded, you really know it, don't you? You know what that's like. Do you use relational power to exclude, to 
commit an injustice. Finance. People with money sometimes will throw money around to their own advantage. You see it in church. I saw this once, go back a couple of years now. I was working in a church uh, and it became apparent, I was the assistant minister, and I kept on wondering why we did things that, in ways that made absolutely no sense. And then after a couple of years, I worked out there were some people who were bankrolling that church who really didn't want anything to change and had made it pretty clear that if things changed, their money would go. And so they were holding the church to ransom. How do you use your money? Maybe it's your physical size. This is probably more to the men amongst us than the ladies. Maybe it's the amount of weight behind the fist. Whether it's the schoolyard bully or it's the domestic violence. Do we use our physical power, men, to perpetrate injustice against those more vulnerable, our wives and our children? How do we use power? How do those underneath us, in whatever sense, how do they experience our power? Is it to build up, to bless, to protect, to honour? Or is it that we use it to get what we want at their expense? How do you know? Watch out for evasions. Watch out for those little mental games you play with yourself explaining why that's really not a problem. That's what Israel was doing. The Persians are kicking us around. It doesn't, God's letting them off the hook. There's all sorts of reasons why what I do doesn't matter. God didn't buy it. God didn't come to put the Persians on trial. He came first and foremost to his people. Watch for those evasions. Watch for those justifications. Watch for the secrecy. Would you be prepared to let anyone else know what you're doing? If someone saw your work practices, knew your financial dealings, saw your relationships, would you be embarrassed? Would you be ashamed? Don't be too quick to let yourself off the hook because I think in our society some level of exploitation has just been normalised. Go back to God's word. Go back to God himself. And set your task, set your standard there. But God gives his people an answer, which brings us on to our third point, uh, coming. Now, Israel was looking forward to what they called the day of the Lord. The prophets spoke the day of the Lord, and they envisioned it as a single day where God would bring both salvation and judgment. He would save his people and judge his enemies. And they were convinced that when this happened, they would be set right. They would be vindicated. They would end up on top, and God would sort out all those other horrible sinners. God's people would end up on top and he would sort out the nations. What's God's answer? It's there in Malachi 3 verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me and suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Where is the God of justice? The God of justice says, I am coming. I'm going to send my messenger to get things ready and then I am going to turn up. 
And I define myself as the messenger of the covenant, the one who announces the, new, the way in which our relationship works. It's kind of like one of the closest analogies is a marriage. You know, the vows that husbands and wives say to each other. What you're actually saying is this is the agreement of how our relationship is going to work. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness, in health. To love and to cherish for as long as we both are living. That is a covenant. And God had established a covenant with his people. And this God, the God of the covenant, is going to come and remind them of their obligations. Because these people, they had, they had presumed upon those ob- the, the, the covenant. They'd ignored the obligations. And Malachi asks, he asks in 3 verse 2, who can endure on the day he is coming? Who can stand when he appears? It's a military allusion. Who can stand? Can you stand against the God of the covenant who is coming? Can you endure? What's the answer? No one. Who can stand? No one. Psalm 103, if you should reckon sins against us, who could stand? No one. Malachi reminds them. They had presumed upon their heritage as God's people. They'd been born into the right tribe and thus God loves us. They had presumed upon that and they'd forgotten that it was God who had bound himself to them in covenant. They had claimed all the privileges and refused all the obligations. They had treated God with contempt and he has come and he says, I will put you on trial. But it's not just then. That was five centuries BC. We're on the other side of Christ. You probably spotted it. Who's the messenger that God's going to send before him? It was John the Baptist. Who is the Lord that's going to turn up to the, the temple? It's the Lord Jesus himself. And the day of the Lord dawned in the birth the ministry, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The God of justice displays that justice once for all at the cross. The salvation and the judgment promised by the Old Testament came to bear through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you are ever thinking, where is the God of justice? God doesn't care or God can't act. Go back to the cross and see it is there that God shows you just how seriously he takes justice. Israel looked for a day. The New Testament tells us that the the day of the Lord is the period between the first and the second coming of Christ. We live in that time. When Christ has come, lived, died and risen from the dead. 
And now we live in that period where forgiveness is being offered, where people are being told, get ready. Because Jesus is not only come in the past, he is coming again. The day of the Lord will end and judgment will fall once for all. We read in Acts 17. God has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who is the man? The man is the Lord Jesus Christ, saviour and judge. Jesus himself tells a story, tells us a parable about the sheep and the goats And he divides the nations before him. The sheep, they will go away. Oh, no, the goats to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's the division. There's the judgment. That day is coming and we await it. Eternal punishment versus eternal eternal life. So who can stand? Maybe we are not like Israel saying, I've been born into the right tribe. But we need to hear this warning. Because we have other categories that we use. Are we right in our own eyes? God will accept me because I was born into a Christian family. I've always been coming along to church. I had a conversion experience. I was baptised. I went forward as the altar call was issued. I prayed a prayer. I know the Bible. My theological knowledge is second to none. I serve in ministry. On what basis do we think God loves us, that God accepts us, that we might be a sheep? And not a goat. Well, back in older times than us, they've kind of gone a bit out of favour, but I think that's a bit sad. There was things called catechisms. Has anyone come across catechisms before? One of my favourite ones is one called the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, 52 days, uh, 52 Sundays, fits into a year. And I'm going to get you, I'm going to catechise you this morning. Catechisms are normally question and answer, okay? Don't worry, the answer's up on the screen, okay? But they're a teaching tool, and they were used uh, back in the day to teach people the fundamentals of the Christian faith. What is the, the basis upon which God will accept us? By which God's judgment will not fall on us, but his salvation will come to us? What is your only comfort, question number one from the Heidelberg Catechism, in life and in death? Time for you to read. Together, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood. And he set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. 
Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What an answer. What an answer. If we are trusting in anything else, the question is, who can stand? If we are trusting in the Christ that stands behind the truth of that answer, we can. We can. But I want to draw to you one thing. Note that last line. Makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Martin Luther said, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Israel to say, we are the covenant people of God, but it doesn't matter how we live. God shows that that is an abomination. For the Christian to say, it doesn't matter how I live because Christ has paid for sin. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. If you can treat the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus for your sin so lightly that you can look at sin and say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how I live. We're not saved by how we live. But how we live is changed, is transformed by the fact that we are saved. And if we can see no evidence in our life that we love the things that God loves and that we hate the things that God hates, can we truly say that we love him at all? James picks this up. James 2 verse 18. Some of you will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. Show me the truth of your belief. You can't. I will show you by my deeds. You believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Israel may have been perfectly orthodox, but they were not living as the covenant people of God. They were using God for their own ends. They were not serving him, loving him above all others. Do we have a demonic orthodoxy or are we people who tremble at his word, who fear him but love him, who know both his judgment that we deserve, that Christ took on the cross and the mercy and the grace that overflows? I think so quickly we go to the mercy and the grace that we forget why it is that Christ died. And the thing, the thing that you hold on to, the thing that you explain away, the thing that you can't do without, that you know is against God's will. Christ died for that. Brother, sister, do not treat God's grace with contempt. It is a very dangerous place to be. We are saved in Christ. We are saved by his grace through our trust in what he has done for us. But that, that must transform us. 
that must transform us as we see his love. And if it doesn't transform us, have we seen it? Have we seen it? We need to live very quickly at the end. Lives of commitment. Christ, or Malachi promises that God will come not just with judgment, but with refining. He will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as days gone by. God will purify his people. The image burning out the dross. Now, as those who have put our faith in Christ, we need not fear the fire of God's anger against sin. Christ bore that for us. He was scorched, scorched by that righteous anger that was ours. But it is the warmth, it is the fire of God's love that breaks us, that melts us, that makes us new. Titus picks this up in chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is the gospel. This is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. This is the gospel that saves, that teaches us to live self-controlled and upright lives, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that has very own, eager to do what is good. As we see his grace... We know that we are saved by his grace, but his grace teaches us, it redeems us, it purifies us, it motivates us. It inspires us to live lives that are eager to do what is good, that turn from injustice, that turn from evil and sin and await his return. So as we wait, let us commit ourselves to do that in holy fear. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. Since we call on a father who judges each work in each person's work impartially. We have a God who judges but a God who saves. Live out your time in foreigners here in reverent fear. God is coming. We live in the day where salvation is offered, where judgment can be averted. Live lives of holy fear, knowing that we have a holy God, but in his love and his mercy, his holiness and his justice, that we deserve to be turned against us, that we might be cast out, have fallen on Christ. And we can be accepted, we can stand because of his grace to us. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word. 
It's a hard word because it confronts the double-heartedness that we so often live with. Lord, we say that we love you. We know your grace to us in Christ. But we, we flirt with sin. We perpetrate injustice against others. We love what you hate and sometimes hate what you love. Father, forgive us. Grant us true repentance. Help us to grieve, to grieve our sin. The affront it is to your holiness. But help us also to receive by faith the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. That we are loved. We can stand. We can endure. Because Christ died and rose for us. Father, I pray for any this morning who are yet to put their trust in you through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Who are yet to acknowledge their need for judgment averted. Father, I pray that you would make plain to them that they need to sort things with you while this day endures. Father, let them not presume upon your patience and your kindness, but Father, let them accept the offering freely available through the death and resurrection of Christ, of the forgiveness, of the grace and the mercy. And Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.